0: So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the radio Wolfgang and the urge
1: just took me to twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You can get caught in the cold,
2: Yes, color gives us an exciting dimension to add to our programs. For the past seven years, we've presented our shows in black and white, and we will continue to entertain you with stories which will cover a wide field of new and exciting subjects. But to come back to the subject of colour, it is such a fascinating topic that we've invited the world's foremost authority to throw some light on the subject.
1: I can't
3: hear anything. I can hear now much better. How's that?
1: Oh, that's very nice. Hello and welcome to the It's Nice That podcast with me, Alex Beck and me, Will Hudson It's Nice That is a website showcasing creative work from all around the world We look at everything from design to video, photography and everything else in between There's so many creative things in the world that we get introduced to every single day that I think we take for granted And actually when you start chipping away at them, you think about them differently In this series, we're going to pick creative things that people like and experience and try and work out why they're successful.
3: So in this episode, we're looking at something that you can't avoid, that is literally everywhere, and that is colour. Full disclaimer before we go on, I am red-green colourblind. Whoa, I knew that
1: actually, I'd just forgotten. What what does red-green colourblind mean?
3: I basically find it difficult to distinguish between certain tonal differences within those colours and I think it also spreads to browns and
1: oranges. It has explained a lot of your wardrobe choices. <laughs> Not really, Will. You've only ever worn blue, just like <laughs> me. <laughs> you've actually worn that same blue jumper for as long it's as I remember. My lucky podcast jumper, mate. <laughs> What's your favourite colour? I knew that was coming.
3: I hate that question. You hate that question? Yeah, I don't have a favourite colour in the same way I don't have a favourite film or a favourite music album or a favorite child because you're a buzzkill scrooge no because it's all to do with context for me it's like a favorite film when i'm in a wanting to laugh mode versus a kind of i don't know deep and meaningful same as color i want to be surrounded by certain colors when i'm getting up and want to get on and i want to be surrounded by other colors when i'm uh wanting to do other stuff. Alex, what's your favourite colour?
1: <laughs> For me, well, it's all about context. <laughs> no, my favourite colour, I don't know, I don't think I have one either, but I like a blue, I'll always go to a red because I'm a big Man United fan, so always signals good times. Full strip, right? Full strip, yeah. a whole lot, yeah. They've never had red shirt, red socks, red shorts though. They'd never do that. A bit more Bayern Munich, that. What colour do you like wearing? Well, black. Why is that? Do I want to own up to the fact that I wear them because I think it makes me look slimmer? I don't know, it's easy, isn't it?
3: I buy into that Mark Zuckerberg, his thing of like, he reduced himself to like a pair of jeans, T-shirt and a hoodie. So he has to eliminate that thought process every morning. And that's the same with me. I just like to put my jeans, black T-shirt on and, and get on thinking about other stuff.
1: Fair. No, I think that's fair enough. You're very consistent with
3: it. Do you have any kind of abiding memories where colour has played a part? That's a very good
1: question, Will. I've painted my room as a teenager, bright, like ochre yellow, yellowy orange which at the time was great and I had, and I had red curtains. Maybe that subconscious Man United things, but I was too old for that probably at that point. When I go back home to that room, it just feels so over the top and so I'm relaxing and I'd never, ever, ever, ever have a room of bright orange or bright yellow that I slept in the whole time. Do you think that colour actually affects your mood?
3: I can probably buy into the idea that it does. I haven't given it that much time or thought. It's, it's funny, colour theory is one of those things that I always remember studying design. Um, people used to kind of bring out as like, a, oh, I've studied design theory and therefore this is going to make
1: you think something totally different. And I think I always kind of looked at it and went, mm, really? I'm not sure. The idea of colour trends and all that kind of stuff, I don't know, it doesn't sit that well with me. It feels like a commercial endeavour or, I don't know, it just feels unnecessary. Really, is there are there trends in colour? But then you think about it, there's trends in food, there's trends in fashion. Of course, there must be trends in colour. Why? I don't know why I feel so angsty about it. But I tell you what, a colour I really love, is that Eves Klein blue, you know, that really beautiful, strong ultramarine blue. That as a colour, if I'm going to say I love a colour or not, that is really special when you see that because it's so unusual. It's
3: it's interesting you bring up artists because I've, like Rothko, I always remember his for being all about colour. And also Hockney is an artist that uses colour amazingly. His series from uh, Yorkshire, where it was colours that you wouldn't assume Being kind of a realistic color representation, then you actually look at it again and go, yes, there is something in that. Did you see the great thing going around social media last week of the woman who took the Pantone chart to the Tate Modern and referenced uh, Hockney's Bigger Splash
1: with a Pantone book out? Absolutely brilliant. But I think you do get individuals who are much better with color, right? You get some artists who are incredible with color, some designers who can really use it beautifully, and some that can't. There must be something in that. Do you think there are specific brands that have really harnessed? a colour particularly well. Yeah, of course, right? There's loads of iconic brands of colours like the Coca-Cola red. That red you could put anywhere and I think you would say, ah, that's Coca-Cola. And do they they own that red, right? I have no idea. If you could find out anything about colour, what do you want to know? I I want to
3: demystify colour theory and actually be able to buy into it or maybe continue dismissing it.
1: Yeah, whether it's complete rubbish or actually colour does influence your mood and the way that it's presented and the places it's in actually makes a difference, right? I'd love to know that. And actually where they come from, I want to find out how colour is made, how how new ones are manufactured. Also interested in the design, advertising angle of colour, the idea of ownership, the idea of being able to have a certain red, like you have your logo and your name. Like, I think that's fascinating. In this podcast, we'll be hearing about the relationship between colour and our behaviour from colour psychologist and creator of The Right Colour Theory, Angela Wright.
3: We'll also be learning about the process of colour production from contemporary artist Stuart Semple and talking to Vice President of the Pantone Colour Institute, Laurie Pressman, about her work forecasting colour trends and colour consulting for big brands.
4: Sunlight is a mixture of colours which however can be seen only when it is split up by droplets of water for instance to form a rainbow let us imitate this effect by causing sunlight or white artificial light to pass through a prism if we add all of the colors of the rainbow together we once more obtain white light surprisingly this
0: can also be done by mixing green blue and red light only furthermore Light of these three colours, if mixed in the right proportions, will give almost any other colour desired. In theory, therefore, a colour picture
1: could be built up from green, blue and red images only. Our next guest is the brain behind the colour effects system, colour psychologist Angela Wright. Angela, welcome to the studio.
4: Hello, thank you very much. How are you? I'm very well. How are you?
1: Very well, very well. So today we're talking about colour. And we're talking about things to do with colour that we may not have appreciated. And so your background and your job is as a colour psychologist. Could you tell us a little bit about what being a colour psychologist means?
4: Well, that's a very interesting question. Being a colour psychologist did mean for many years being somewhere out there on the lunatic fringe in the eyes of society. <laughs> but it came about because I was brought up in a hotel in the Lake District. It's a very colourful part of the world. And we found there that our guest behaviour appeared to be very consistently influenced by the colour schemes. So, for example, we'd have two bedrooms identical in every detail but the colours, and we find all the regular guests wanted that one and nobody wanted this one. So when I got older and started involving myself in the interiors, I asked them, why don't you like this one? Without exception, they always said the same thing. Oh, I do like it. I'm not criticising it. You've done it beautifully. It's it's lovely. I just feel better in the other one. And I thought... What? (laughs) And what colour was the other one? Well, no, it it wasn't quite that simple. For one thing, just jumping the gun ahead a bit, we we actually don't respond to one colour in isolation because we're never confronted by one colour. It's all about colour combinations. For example, we had two particularly memorable bedrooms, one of which should have been the number one, like Royal Suite type bedroom, and the other one was on the same part of the building but at the back smaller windows overlooking the woods. Everybody wanted the little, what we thought was a dark hovel at the back. And then we just thought on a weird whim, well, let's knock back the yellow a bit. No reason, just instinct. And we knocked back the yellow a bit and suddenly more blue, less yellow. The room became more desirable. I now understand that too much yellow in the bedroom does produce grumpy guests. I know how and why that works now, but at the time I didn't know.
1: Why does yellow produce more grumpy guests?
4: Because there are four psychological primary colours, red, blue, yellow and green, based on how the eye and the brain process colours. And yellow is the colour that activates the emotions. Red is physical, raises the pulse rate and the blood pressure. Blue activates the intellectual activity, the mind and thought. So if you get your emotions all stirred up, just when you're trying to go to sleep, you're not going to get a good night's sleep. A little yellow in the bedroom, certain amount of motion stirring is not going to run amiss. But if it's overdone and you get fraught and tense, you don't sleep. You're bad-tempered. And this was way too much yellow in that room.
3: So upon realising that, you've then dedicated a, a considerable amount of your life to understanding this and qualifying as a
4: colour psychologist. It's consumed me completely since about 1976. Because when, I, when the family rather inconveniently sold the hotel on me <laughs> when I wasn't looking, I thought, oh, well, I'll go and study colour psychology now. And found that I couldn't. I was told on all sides that its response to colour is too subjective to teach and too random to predict. and anyway, it's all governed by culture and gender. And I thought, I don't believe that anything as fundamental to life as light, which is what colour is, can possibly be random. There have to be patterns. So I sort of blundered around the natural world of colour and the academic world of colour, For some years, and then I met a lady in California who was part of the family that invented Technicolor. And she said, I can help you answer some of your questions if you'd like to work with me, would I? Whoa, that was fantastic. So what kind of stuff were you doing there? A certain amount of it was teaching. A lot of it was consulting. Uniforms, morale's a bit low, or the brand is not looking right, or whatever, all of these were foreign concepts to me at the time, and I just sort of trailed around after her observing, really. But for instance, there was one situation where there was a bit of a dispute going on in a California bank, and the uniform was a darkish red, a sort of maroony burgundy kind of red. And Laura, my teacher, said, well, we're going to have to have two reds here to unite the warring factors. And I said, well, we can't have two reds. The word uniform, hello, the clue's in the name, <laughs> uni. <laughs> but she found two reds that were so similar the casual observer wouldn't notice there was any difference but actually the effect on wearers was incredible and I said how are you going to decide which wearer should have which red she said I'm not they will they'll gravitate instinctively towards the right one for them and indeed they did and that was the beginning of my learning about all that
3: and, and essentially this is something that is just completely ingrained within us how much can you fight those preconceptions if you're told that or how much does it just rely on the fact that it it is part of life you are wearing certain colors have you done that on purpose
4: in the morning when i get up and start getting ready to go out and face the world it's like everybody else what's ironed what can i get into (laughs) but actually that's not strictly true because on another level i am making a decision everybody is so this passion for black which the fashionistas tell us is so sophisticated and glamorous and and of course it goes with everything and it's slimming those are all complete misconceptions it's none of those things but it suits everybody to convince themselves that that is the case because actually what black is is a security blanket and in these terrifying times we do reach for a security blanket and the other almost knocking black off its popularity perch is gray and gray is the color of austerity so people will give you all sorts of conscious rationale about why they choose this colour, but on on an unconscious level, they are expressing stuff that they perhaps are not consciously aware of.
1: So colour psychology really then for the layman is about understanding the effects that colour has on, your, on yourself, on your being, right?
4: And on how other people react to you. Just going back to your earlier questions when you said, is it built in? Um, yes, it is. We wouldn't have survived evolution as well as we had if we hadn't had colour. Colour is the universal non-verbal language that everybody speaks, whether or not they're aware of it. And every waking moment, our eyes and our brains are adapting to the wavelengths of light that are entering our eyes and, in fact, the whole of our bodies, whether we're aware of it or not. And a lot of the time, we're not aware of it. But that doesn't mean it's not happening. People think it's all about looking nice. It is about looking nice, but it's much more about the energy of colour. It's electromagnetic energy and so it's affecting us.
1: One of the most general understandings of colour is in nature. So some oh, yes. some, some colours are dangerous. Don't eat that. Some are Exactly. And so why has it taken then so long, do you think, for that obvious and accepted understanding of colour in nature to be applied to colour in the real world?
4: Well, colour has a dynamic of its own and it, it's not an easy subject, to be honest. I actually had a fight with a mathematician yesterday <laughs> on the subject of a green. We ended up laughing about it, but we, we did get into a fight about this green. I mean, it's crazy. However, in the greater scheme of things, humanity always knew. We were all born and still are born with an instinct for colour. We know that if we eat a green apple, it'd probably be quite delicious and do us good. If we eat a piece of green meat, it probably won't. The only thing that's telling us that is our instinctive recognition of the colour patterns. Creature coming towards us, if it's black and yellow, better take evasive action. Don't go and try to hug a tiger, for example. Not a good idea. Or a wasp. But we know that. Well, how do we know it? We were born with these instincts and they did contribute to our survival.
1: What is the world's favourite colour? Blue. Blue? Why is that?
4: Time and again in research, it's always come out top of the hit parade kind of thing. And I can only think that there's an instinctive yearning for a bit of peace and clear thinking.
3: So on the topic of blue, I have a four-year-old son's bedroom where one wall is orange, one wall is blue. There's two walls that are kind of an off-white. Is that a good idea? How
4: bright is the orange? Uh, Pretty bright. Well, it's fairly balanced, but I can see a little bit of a...
1: I'll be bruiser, Angela. Don't <laughs> hold back. I feel like you're being too polite. <laughs> Would <So> you <laughs> Tell him where he's going wrong, Angela. Come on, we're all friends here.
4: I, th- I think you might need to soften it a bit.
1: Okay, done. <laughs> if Why is if that? that
3: can guarantee good behaviour, I'm what? up for painting.
1: Why well, soften? What, what do you think the effect? Because we can we can test this because we can ask what Will's son is like. So what you, what would you imagine a four-year-old living in a one blue or one orange? He does wall? get beyond that room. It should <laughs> be stressed. But he spends a lot of time there. What would you imagine that child is like?
4: Well, I would think he he's got two sides. He's got two almost conflicting influences going on. And the white is—is is it white? White?
3: No, it's a slightly off white. Oh, so it's like not... an eggshell.
4: Oh, what? What color is the blue? What kind of blue?
3: The blue is quite a deep blue, maybe just deeper than kind of an electric blue.
4: Oh. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh
1: oh. All
4: right. We need to soften the orange, and lighten the blue. Or what? <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> because I was going to say because the there's a conflict going on in in here. Uh, now potentially it's not a conflict because the orange and the blue are complementary and they do provide the balance. But at the moment, you've got clashing just from your description of the kind of orange and the kind of blue. They're clashing. Therefore, the negative side of both is coming out. And when he's in, like, relating to the orange wall, he's, he's going to be a bit sort of mindless. And I don't mean that rudely. No, that, you know sounds, I mean? that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> but if he's sort of tuning into the blue, he might be thinking himself up into a bit of a stress situation.
3: If people wanted to do something in their day-to-day life, they themselves could actually recognise the impact colour can
4: have. Are there kind of quick things people can try and do? Blind people can differentiate colours with their fingertips. When I first discovered all that, I thought, well, I'm going to try this with my students. And at the end of a day of working with colour, I would divide them up into pairs and One would blindfold the other and I had cards made in the same size and shape and texture and everything, just the colours different, and get them to hover or just touch lightly with the fingertips and see if they could feel the different energies of the two colours. Not only have I never had anybody who couldn't feel the difference, I've had quite a lot of people who can identify the colours and that really is going so. Oh yes, this feels like a yellow. Or where did you get that from? I don't know, it just feels like a yellow. Open it up, boy! It's a yellow.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. I have it to is. do that. It I is. Yes, so there must be so many um, applications for sport or for other things. So like oh, those... come
4: on! We've had some hilarious examples of that.
1: Go on, give us a hell of well. That. The
4: sport. I did, I, somebody rang me from Total Football one day, and I gave him a couple of quotes. He came back. He said, "I want to talk to you more. The editor wants to know more about this." We ended up with four pages <laughs> on kits. About, yeah, and the famous time that Manchester United. Wore a grey kit on a. You know, everybody knows yeah. that story.
1: I then, cried. I physically cried, Angela. I'm a big Man United fan, and I, I so wept. Am I. I wept,
4: and I I kept saying to myself, "I should tell them ahead <laughs> of time. I should tell them."
1: I mean, that doesn't take much colour psychology, though, does it? That's common sense. You could see them on the background. <laughs> well,
4: that's the no. That's the rationale. The truth is, red is physically stimulating. It's the colour for a football team because it's giving you the physical strength and the energy to really maximize the whole the whole performance. Now blue Chelsea has an, an equally powerful effect but it's it's intellectual. So what Chelsea's doing is psyching them out, the opposition. The Manchester United the red is scaring everybody because they're big and strong and powerful and all wow. that. And the blue is is psyching the opposition out. We we've got a, a strategy <laughs> We'll have you.
1: It. it sounds like John Terry, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, I guess two questions: If you, if
3: a, if a new club came to you and said, "Look, we're looking for a, a home kit and a away kit," if you wanted them to succeed, you'd recommend they play in what color? They should have some red somewhere. Okay. Quite a lot
4: of it somewhere. And if
3: you didn't like the look of them and wanted them to kind of get relegated,
4: no, I would make my excuses and leave. I don't do that sort of thing. Oh,
1: Andrew, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> no. What would be the no. most? De- <laughs> what would be the most detrimental color for a football team to wear? Well, actually, hypothetically,
4: <laughs> <laughs> grey.
1: Great. Okay. Right. And actually, I can't think of one great football team.
4: Well, that's, they all learnt from that day at Southampton, didn't they?
1: That was fantastic. Thank you very much.
4: Thanks, Angela. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
1: I found that absolutely fascinating, Will. I'm a very cynical man, I think, in general. And People so, have listened to six episodes, mate. They're going to know that. No one's listened to six episodes. Will, I completely believe that colour theory is obviously a thing and that colours affect the way you feel. How could you deny it? But before this, I would have gone, oh, whatever, mumbo-jumbo.
3: Yeah, I'm with you. Colour is the universal non-verbal language. Bosh. Yeah, done. Uh, I've, I've totally changed my opinion on giving all that stuff time and thought. And actually, I think I'm weirdly excited about the possibility of very subtle but considered changes that can influence the way people feel or um, the way they want to interact, the way they want
1: to going to get on and do stuff. For all listeners who are worried about your child in that orange and blue room, what what, what steps are you going to take? I'm not, I'm just going to mess with his head for like... <laughs> no, I'm
3: joking. No, I don't think I'll do anything immediately, but I'm definitely interested by it. It's a lot of work to paint a room, mate. <laughs> Got to cut in, cut in and then roller and
1: move everything. And he's all right. He sleeps quite well. That's it. It's absolutely fascinating. I think one of the most interesting things that we discussed was that idea of harmony and like referring to colour-like music. It's about what it's seen near and next to. And I never really thought about that. When I think of red, I do think about red in isolation, but obviously you can never think about red in isolation.
3: And I think that's where I certainly have, wherever people have mentioned colour theory to me before, it's been in way too much a blatant obvious use of one colour on one thing, which I think is when it's when it is used
1: incorrectly. Do you think if you touched a red sheet of paper, a blue sheet of paper and a yellow sheet of paper, all the same texture, you could feel the difference? With my eyes closed. With your, <laughs> with your eyes closed.
3: I'd love to try it. I'd love it. That, that's the kind of thing you know, I just bundle it all into a thing that says, no way, like how, why.
1: Okay, so amazing bit of radio this. We're watching Will Hudson hover his hands over two separate pieces of paper, same texture, same material, obviously very different colours. So Will, talk to us about what you're feeling, mate.
3: Well, I had to check for bits of paper
1: underneath. There are definitely bits of paper underneath. It f- I don't know. What colour is in your left hand? Will?
3: For whatever reason, I feel like this one under my right is a darker colour. It feels like there's a stronger force. So it feels like a stronger force. On so that. I would guess that this is like a purpley blue and this is maybe like a pastely green. So your
1: right hand feels like there's more force. Well, there's and, more going on, but I am right-handed. so. And your left hand feels like what? Chilled.
3: Yeah, I guess. I don't know.
1: I think, to be honest, it's pretty amazing. I think you should you should take your blindfold off. Mm. Actually, red, we've been speaking about, is powerful. It's all about vividness and more going on. And blue is more calm and serene. And you nailed exactly that. You didn't get the colour, mm. right? But you did feel more in your right hand. Weird. Science. Right. Who'd have thought? Let's have a bash. So you've got two pieces of
3: coloured paper underneath each hand. You, you've gone for more of just a fingers-only approach. I'm not saying what one's right or wrong. What are, you, what are you thinking? I'm really
1: trying to concentrate. I swap them over just to kind of check. They feel absolutely identical. They feel the same. I can't feel any difference. Do you want to take a stab at what colour they I mean, each are? I'm going to go green the same. Okay. I'm guessing completely. I think they're both the same. Okay, do you want to take your blindfold off? Yes! <laughs> they're both pink. Yeah. I think the experiment's really interesting. I'm believing in this idea that colour is actually... <laughs> a thing i'm believing the science more and more and more but if this morning someone had gone if you put your hand above two different colors they're going to feel different i'd be like get out. but i believe it i'm a convert brilliant i would love
3: to give it a a longer go i still feel like i maybe just took a bit with stab in the
0: dark
1: literally a stab in the dark so i tell you what let's have them run all the colors across
0: the screen that you need to paint along with me and while they're doing that let's go on up here and get started I'm going to start today with a small amount of Indian yellow, just the least little amount on the two-inch brush. Just just tap a little colour in there. Let's make a nice little, oh, like a little sunset back here, like so.
1: And we'll just start and just drag a little colour across, like that, like that. So next we're going to hear from Stuart Semple, who's famed for producing new colours, including the pinkest pink and also having an ongoing battle with Anish Kapoor.
0: I can still remember my first experience of colour very, very, very vividly. When I was eight years old, my mum took me to the National Gallery and I was confronted by Van Gogh sunflowers. It was an experience that I'd never, ever had before. It was like I was in awe, my feet kind of glued to the spot, my eyes wouldn't close and my mum said that you know I was kind of twitching and it was like something had happened to me. And even now I can really, really, really remember that painting. So since then I've kind of been obsessed with colour and how artists use it. And I think kind of that's how the whole thing started. I love paint and I've loved paint ever since I was a child because there's something very visceral and very tactile about it. But I find that in the world we live in now colours reproduced and if you look at any magazine any printing it's made out of well prints made out of cmyk dots close together little bundles clusters of dots and screens are made out of red green and blue pixels that are backlit so these couldn't be further from the truth of real pure colour if you see a real pure cadmium red for example that's a beautiful, natural substance that has a potency that can't actually be remade. Like, photography can't do greens properly. And um, when you see real colour in real life, it's just amazing. And in painting, we get to explore that all the time, which is just wonderful.
3: Pantablack Black is a, a light absorption uh, coating.
0: A couple of years ago... A nanotech company called Surrey Nanosystems announced that they'd created the world's blackest black, and that black absorbed something like 98.9% of all visible light. So the effect of that substance was almost like a black hole. You could paint it on a 3D object and it looked almost flat.
4: So You can see that that foil is quite crinkled and creased. The eye picks those creases up very easily. If I now turn to the front, then there shouldn't
3: be enough light coming off there for the eye to discern any uh, creases. Or...
0: Shortly after that, they entered an exclusive arrangement with the British artist and sculptor Anish Kapoor, which meant that only Kapoor's studio could use it in art. So they were more than happy to work with deodorant manufacturers, luxury brands, watches, cars, music industry, but they refused to let any artist apart from Anish use that substance. In art, the ultimate black is a bit of a holy grail and since day dot, artists have been kind of striving for the absence of all colour. For one artist to possess that, to us as an artistic community, was like, what? You've got the ultimate thing we've been looking for for thousands and thousands of years. Can we have a go? No, no, no. Artists were very upset and um, they started kind of lobbying Anish and the creators of Van to Black to share it. So this Share the Black hashtag started to emerge on the internet and then I saw that actually and I was like, oh, wow, you know, I'm glad people are doing something about it. And then I almost contributed the pink to that hashtag. So I released the pink on the internet as a bit of a joke, really, and I thought maybe one or two people would laugh about it and someone might buy one What happened was it took on a complete life of its own and thousands and thousands of people bought it. And it was at that point it kind of, it just went completely bonkers. So when I released The Pink, I put a disclaimer on the website that... You had to agree to the fact that you weren't Anish Kapoor, you weren't going to share the material with Anish Kapoor, and to the best of your knowledge, information and belief, the paint wouldn't make its way into the hands of Anish Kapoor. So, you know, it was very tongue-in-cheek and it, it was supposed to be funny. When I first saw Anish Kapoor's Instagram post where he dipped his finger in the pink, up yours, you know, I didn't believe it. I didn't think it was actually Anish Kapoor. And then someone in my studio was like, no, that's actually his Instagram. I was like, what, are you joking? And then I looked at it, and at first I sort of thought it was funny, and then I realised that it kind of wasn't. You know, I wasn't the only one that thought so, so if you look at the comments on that post, there's like thousands of artists basically calling him out on it. After that, what happened was people started writing to me, asking me to make a black And I kind of didn't know how. A super black was a bit out of my remit. So I created the best black I could with what I had and I released it to a thousand artists. I asked them for their feedback, comments and ideas and I was just inundated with awesome stuff I knew nothing about. Different mixes and pigments and chemicals and binders and... I put all that together and actually, I didn't make black. Thousands of artists around the world helped make that black. And it's just awesome because I get to use it and I'd never have a black like that if people hadn't done it. So I'm
1: really lucky that kind of we got that. I think it's amazing. So, Will, what do you make of Stuart's row with Anish Kapoor? I think it's
3: uh, great that it engages potentially the people that are talking about it bit, an ish bit. Uh, fellow artists but Stuart I think it's just I'd just go and just get hold of the black and start using the black and kind of if that's how he's going to behave about something that's purposefully a comment on him not being able to get hold of something and use it
1: then surely everyone should just do the same with the black. Isn't it interesting that we care about colour like that or Stuart does and artists do but there's so many other things that we don't care about. I've mentioned this before but trademarking a name or a logo or something else, yeah, whatever, you can have that. But the idea it's a colour, like it belongs to us as a species almost and as an artistic community. The idea we can't use a certain colour, somehow that is an attack on the artistic community rather than all the other things that are getting protected. There's something very deep at the root of colour that must mean that, um, I don't know, We humans must have such a special relationship to it to even react like that. Have you seen the Black, the real black, 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 black one? No. It is amazing what it does. If people listen to this pod and are like, oh, whatever. Like, I'm sure it's just another black. It is not. Like, actually go and find out. Go go on that hashtag and see what it does to a 3D object. It is truly incredible. It is it is absolutely amazing. Stuart made reference to this in that piece, which is on screen we see colours
3: as RGB and obviously when we print stuff it's a mix of CMYK. What we are talking about is very purest colours in there pure form, it's not a combination of a
1: CMYK or an RGB. It's funny how almost everything is getting commercialised now, and that's a bigger point, isn't it? But the idea that an artist tries to own something that should be universally accessible, I think from, from the beginning of this podcast, I'm most fascinated about how you own, devise your own colour. And the best person in the world who can tell us about that is Laurie Pressman, who's the Vice President of the prestigious Pantone Colour Institute, who essentially help companies make decisions about colour use. So, Laurie, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
1: As as designers, obviously, we know what Pantone is because we're used to that as a universal system. For any listeners who don't know what Pantone as a company is, how would you describe it?
2: I would say, how do I put it in a nice way? A soup to nuts? You know, I look at Pantone as an internationally recognized color language so that at the heart of who Pantone was, we're a universal language of color that's used by designers around the world to access color trends, to communicate their color selections, to control color. We each see color differently. We express what a color is differently because we see it differently. Pantone is an objective way, if I look at the color language standard for people to be able to see, speak to colour, express colour, explain
1: colour. I've got an interesting one. We spoke to a colour psychologist earlier on the show and she said that mm-hmm. for a long time she's been working on this and she's always seen as completely crazy, the idea that colour can actually affect things. And it was never really given the appreciation that maybe it deserves. Have, have you guys found that a Pantone? Has colour been, I guess, more accepted as a big indicator of brand and mood and psychology today than it was in 1986?
2: I think then... You know, there was a recognition then by some people about the importance of color and how color can influence what we buy, make, and feel, so to speak. But I think today people are acknowledging the important role that color plays. And I think there's a lot of things that may feed into something like that. You know, if you go down to, you know, 10 years back and you see the beginnings of all the DIY shows, maybe even 15 years back, and consumers paying attention to you know, what was on TV 24-7, fashion and home, and starting to be able to express who they are because they felt they had permission to express who they are. You start to see the rise of the Internet and people being able to see what's going on in the world of color in other countries. And I think social media was a huge tipping point because social media gave people permission and the comfort level to take what they've learned and express who they are through all of these different channels. So everybody today... Uses color. The interesting thing to me is that you may have that same color at John Lewis or Harrods or whatever it is, and that same color may resonate with the 13 year old and the 83 year old, but the way you need to reach those people could be completely different. What
1: enables someone, what qualifies someone at the Pantone Color Institute to be a color expert? I mean, there's not a degree, I can't go and study colour BA, can I? Or maybe I can, I don't know.
2: The people that are part of the Pantone Colour Institute are people that have been working in the world of colour. They're either in design, have their own design studios, they're colorists. they may be teaching colour and design at a university, London College of Fashion, Royal College of Art, you know, things like that. This is what they live and breathe and what they do. Some of it is going to school for color and some of it is going to school for design, but it's also an innate love for color and innate appreciation of what color brings to a product, the understanding of the pivotal element and the pivotal role that color plays in the design process, and being able to connect the dots. Because on the trend side, a lot of what you're doing is really looking at these big macro trends and being able to understand how those trends get communicated out into a language of color. Color because color reflects what's taking place in the culture at a specific moment in time, and not only at that specific moment in time, but also into the future. What do you see happening into the future, and how that can be adapted in color? And being able to look all around, so you're looking at macro trends and you're looking across all these different indicators, or all around the world for these different indicators and then connecting dots, taking lots of pictures, see the commonality.
3: I'm right in saying, Laurie, that this is all a kind of human interaction. There isn't an algorithm or kind of a piece of software that you can just plug all this into.
2: Not really. Look at the people on the team that we're affiliated with Who strongest piece has been the street art area and being able to use that as one of the trend indicators. They have a database where they catalogue all of the different images that they take, and they're able to categorize them in that way. But a lot of the people don't work in that way. They're much more hands-on, where they may be laying things out on a screen or printing a million things out. I mean, with the color, it may not be as true in that way, and I get that, and laying it out that way. So I think it just depends on your comfort level.
3: And are there particular kind of products or services that lend itself more to, to kind of Pantone's consultancy?
2: I would say the two places, I, I see it you know, on the product side because color makes or breaks a product at retail. There's no question if you get the color in too early, too late, you're not going to make the sale. What we're seeing now is the rise of people on the packaging side and on the branding side coming to us for a new brand color or a revitalization of their brand color and a story. What's the story? Tell me why this red. Why does this red help support my messaging and what I'm trying to say because in our flat world, people are looking for texture, they're looking for depth. Color creates that emotional connection and I think the story helps to make you feel that, that there's more to it. So product and also branding color.
3: And and when you talk about kind of a brand coming to you, for, for example, a red, how, how possible is it that a brand can own that specific color of red? How far can you actually have a red that's different to a kind of coca-cola red or something else do brands actually come to, to look specifically to own a color
2: yes they do and we can't trademark the color they would have to trademark the color but when we think about ownership i think of somebody like tiffany's who the reason people think of owning that blue and yes they have trademarked that blue so but prior to that you know you think of that blue, you see that blue, you see Tiffany's. There's just no question. And why is that? Because they've taken that color and they use it consistently across all platforms. Tiffany also comes back to us every six months to rerun that standard, to make sure that that color is as close as it possibly can be and to ensure that consistency. So because what happens is a color can migrate over time. And the color you may have had made for you five years ago, if you keep going back up to print it someplace else with a printer, if you're what we call the tolerance levels, aren't tight enough, five years later, it could look like something else. So a brand has to take that very seriously. They have to go out with that color time and time and time again to really own that color. I know for myself, and this may sound silly, I travel a lot. I may not love Starbucks all the time, but I know I look for that green because I know no matter where I am, I'm going to get that cup of coffee. I know what to expect. So I think when you look at brand color today, the more that people put that same color out time and time and time again, we build up association so we know what that means. It's subliminal.
1: If a brand comes to you looking for a certain color, do you have lots and lots and lots of colors ready or are you making every single one of those completely from scratch?
2: So, for example, we work with Twining's. They wanted to create a color of optimism for the UK market. And they didn't want it to be your typical yellow because if you asked me the color based on our research that people think of typically when you think of optimism, you think of sunny yellow. You think of that sun shining through on a, on a cloudy day. The minute we walk out, we smile. We look up to the sky. It's yellow. We smile. We're happy, especially when it's raining. So they didn't want to go down that path. They wanted to go down the path of a blue because blue is hopeful. Blue is consistent. We think of the blue skies above. Uh, and they did surveys and research in the UK market. But what they wanted us to do was to add a touch of yellow because with the yellow, you get the warmth, you get the energy. Blue is typically a cool color. So I would say to you, there's an unlimited amount of colors in the world. So as long as we know what the goal for somebody is, we can help tweak a color. We have a basis from where to start. But what are you trying to accomplish? What's the message that you want to give, and then we can work in that way to help create the color that communicates that message.
1: It's fascinating because if it's done well, it looks effortless and we never think about it, right? And
2: you just really hit the nail on the head. The people that do this really well... It looks absolutely effortless. And there's so much thought that goes into it's the color of the materials, the color of the surface that's going to be applied to, how the, what context is the color going to be shown in, where is it, so I say context, time and place. Is it going to be on a shelf? Is it going to be online? Is it going to be a luxury customer? Is it not? There are so many things to consider and you don't think about that.
1: That's such a nice place to end, I think. And it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, as soon as you start to pull the thread, it just unravels completely. There's so much to discuss but we really appreciate your insights
2: thank you so much for the opportunity
1: pleasure thank you for your time thank you laurie
2: thank you too have a good rest of your day you guys
1: it's fascinating isn't it that there's a color industry that exists behind all these things that we take for granted i find that the most interesting bit about it i also find it again back to my original point i'm a very cynical person it's amazing that we're so cynical about color i don't know i think it's so easy to go oh god a brand's trying to define its own color and trying to trying to buy a colour or trying to own a colour in a certain way. And I know um, Laurie spoke about that in a a really beautiful way, but I don't know why we're so cynical about it. I don't know why it feels wrong that a brand might try and own a colour or not.
3: I think the thing that struck me when Laurie was talking, it's dangerous to detach this idea that it's brand equals colour. It's much more this idea that a brand is made up of so many other assets, the font choice, the tone of voice, the price point that all like it's made up of so many things actually to me it makes loads more sense that is if you give a little bit more time thinking to the color maybe your brand will resonate that much more and be that much more considered in the same way if you give a little bit more time consideration to the font choice or the tone of voice or whatever it be I think actually I've got more respect for
1: conscious decision to invest the time and energy and probably money in order to get that right it's essentially a smart design decision right why would you not think about your color the same as when a logo or a bit of packaging or product is done beautifully it feels effortless the same as a great color choice
3: yeah i think the only thing that i'd say that's different to angela who who i thought spoke amazingly well about the things that are, are ingrained with us that we can't really argue with there's definitely this element of a more fashion trend coming into place with Pantone. And therefore I think it's quite interesting how that you can harness those kind of thoughts and ideas to, to influence someone's thought. Who would you want client wise? who
1: do you want to come to you and go, right? I don't feel capable to decide anyone's colour. I dress in navy. All I do is pick the same colour every single day. So I reckon I could get a consistency for someone. Yeah. If it was navy
0: the late Czechoslovakian painter Eve Klein is ready. The music inspires. These models covering themselves with paint are the human brushes with which Klein will give form and color to his creative fever.
2: As some of you may have
0: guessed, Klein's favorite color is blue. Blue is also his favorite form. As a matter of fact, blue is his only form and his only color. Blue are his paintings for which there is a great demand. Blue is the work toward which our camera is moving considered by many authoritative critics as the greatest Klein masterpiece and from which the expert
1: can readily deduct that blue is the dominant colour. So we're done. Looked at a whole load of aspects. What do you think about it now?
3: I want to embrace this idea of how it can influence how I feel about stuff or, or the environment and the feelings that can be evoked as a result. And I think that's probably more a conscious decision in those areas or environments that I spend more time. So in my house work. This studio. I definitely want to give them more consideration because I think if you can be in different rooms in your house that can influence your emotion and feeling and stuff like that. I think that's amazing. And the same with work. I think if you can have a a room which will kind of aid and benefit wanting to come up with ideas in an energetic place as opposed to somewhere that's maybe more calming, concentrated, um intellectual just paint it blue, right? Just you will instantly be more
1: intelligent. That's what I've taken from today's bud. I'm with you. It's more I just I get that that idea that it's more than just cosmetic and it's not just a load of people trying to um, build an industry around something they want to. It's mathematical, scientific fact that some things make you feel differently. And I can't believe I was such a heathen not really to understand that before. I also love the idea of harmony that we spoke about with Angela. That's really stuck with me. The idea it's about like musical notes. How are these things sing together is the real critical part because you never see a colour in isolation. But really... like a lot of things that we've, we've spoken about on this podcast we're talking about design decisions here aren't we we're talking about broad decisions which are really in the, the absolute essence of design when you unravel one there's a massive trench of people who are absolute experts in certain areas it's truly amazing how well put Alex
3: I've nothing to add to that
1: thanks from this pod I'm mostly worried about your mindless stress child <laughs> Waking up every morning in an orange and blue room. Um, Athelstan, if you're listening, Athelstan He doesn't listen to podcasts. If you're listening, call me. Um, I'll help you out. He
3: doesn't listen to podcasts. He certainly doesn't (laughs) know how to operate a mobile
1: phone. (laughs) Mate, the guy's stressed. (laughs) Don't worry, Athel, I'm coming.
3: This episode of the It's Nice That podcast was brought to you by It's Nice That and the team at Radio Wolfgang. It featured me, Will Hudson, and Alex Beck, talking to Angela Wright and Laurie Pressman, as well as an insert from Stuart Semple. The executive producer was Harry Watson, the assistant producers were Natalia Rodriguez and Elle Scott, and the producer was Ivor Manley. Uh, Al you always get a bit jealous of me doing outro no
1: I'm fine no, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, done. I'm happy for you to do it well